Hello and welcome back to another episode of Amy Talks Politics. This episode is all about Europe as I chat to ITV News' Europe editor James Mate as we talk EU opinion on Brexit, news journalism and we also take your questions submitted on social media. So in terms of news there is actually quite a lot. Over in America there has have been floods in Texas if you've been watching the news then you'll know all about that. There's been a lot of kind of political drama surrounding it as well as um, Trump pledges a million dollars towards the relief fund which is great to great to see but will he actually follow through with it you know nobody knows north korea have been doing nuclear tests they have sent a ballistic missile over japanese waters which is quite scary for those living there obviously but also kind of scary for the world as well because it shows that we might be edging closer to war particularly with kind of China being one of North Korea's biggest allies and it can't let go of that. The UN Council met yesterday, which was 4th September, and they introduced sanctions to North Korea. The US ambassador said that Kim Jong-un is begging for war, which isn't surprising really because he's always wanted to have a war with somebody. Could we be set for war? Who knows? Back in uh, domestic news, yesterday Theresa May announced the government back after the summer. So Theresa May announced to end the 1% pay cap for public sector workers and I believe Nicola Sturgeon has just done the same thing in Scotland. Jeremy Corbyn has um, announced that he's going to push his Labour MPs to vote against the repeal bill which is that EU law turns into UK law so that we don't get left in the dark when we uh, finally leave the European Union. Mrs May's going to have to deal with some stiff competition for that one because and it's going to face hell in Parliament because um, lots of the MPs are opposing against it and will be voting against it when they have a snap vote. So I'm here with James Mates, hello. Hello there. You have worked at ITN for quite a while. 35 years now. Wow. You've held other positions including Moscow correspondent, uh, Moscow correspondent, and covered lots of historical events including the genocide in Rwanda and the election of Nelson Mandela and things like that. You're currently ITV News' Europe editor. Correct. Covering the migrant crisis in Europe amongst other issues, obviously. Mostly Brexit now. Yeah, commenting on Brexit from kind of the Euro side of things. You went to Leeds Uni. I did. And studied politics and history. Correct. I found that out from the University Challenge. Your dad, Michael, held the Conservative seat. Yep. for East Hampshire until 2010. Did that inspire you into studying politics at uni? or My degree was mostly an international history degree in which there was mm-hmm. a politics element, but certainly an interest in, in current affairs uh, was, uh, I guess, inevitable. And current affairs yeah. were always around the house mm-hmm. and always discussed around the I guess table so, yeah. And, you know. So how did you end up in journalism? Well, I, uh, I never wanted to end up anywhere else, I guess, from <laughs> age about 14, 15, which in many ways makes life much easier if you're trying to get into yeah. journalism, if you really know you want to do it, because you can then really focus all your efforts, which, mm-hmm. I, which I did at university with Leeds Student, the newspaper, and with uh, various holiday jobs, internships, and anything like that, and, uh, and wrote a lot and, and taught a lot of journalists, and it, it does make life a lot easier in terms of sort of getting a CV together. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by the time I came to applying for jobs out of university, I was lucky enough to get a traineeship at ITM. Uh, but I didn't realise at the time that I was never going to leave. But, you know. <laughs> I always wanted to ask someone who might know this. Since you kind of started in journalism, how has news coverage changed, in particular with issues like kind of Brexit and terrorism and social media increasing hysteria in the country and everything like that, like how, and rolling news all the time and 
notifications everywhere? Like, has it changed a lot? In yeah, I mean, rolling news has obviously changed things dramatically, and social media has changed things dramatically. The rest of it, I think, is just is just uh, changes in society, which uh, you you cover the news in order to report and reflect on that. You, you, you expect things to be changing and they, you don't always know the direction they're going to change and often you're surprised. But in terms of the actual way that we do coverage, technology, uh, obviously, I mean, when I started, we were just changing from film to video, and, uh, <laughs> which had its own challenges at the time. And it was a three bulletin a day, appointment to view, uh, operation for everybody. Channel 4 News had only just started. Uh, and then a few years later, Sky News and Rolling News came along, and mm. that obviously made a huge difference to the way uh, we operate. We had a Rolling News channel ourselves here for many years. Um, I really I didn't know that. Yeah, I, uh, the ITV News Channel. So that obviously changes things, mm-hmm. and, and changes the news cycle in a very big way yeah. as well, because when I started, you know, you listen to the day programme, much as you do now, often the agenda would be set for the day. Um, by and large... Um, you pretty much knew where you were by the evening, and that was a 24-hour cycle. Well, now with rolling news, the news cycle can be down to you know eight hours, six hours, sometimes only one hour between. You know, mm. you're changing, changing everything, and people feeling that that um, you know they they've seen and know all the news already. And in many ways, yeah. that's true. I mean, in the old days, you went to work at nine o'clock, and you may pick up an evening paper on your way home, but basically by the end of the day, you you sort of sat down to watch the news at six or ten or whenever to find out what had happened that mm. day. Well, now everybody knows what's happened yeah. that day. And so what we're trying to do is something very different, to try and t- tell them, put a, a, a degree of context into what's happened and some level of explanation. And uh, and it's a very... We, we, we move way beyond, you know, this, this and this happened, because mm. you all know that. Yeah. And, of course, we also know that from uh, from social media, that even, even if people aren't reading newspapers and... Uh, um, listening to the radio during the day. The first thing that pops up on social media is the latest news. Precisely. They're seeing it every time they look at their phone, and that, again, changes the nature of of what we try and do Mm. with our appointment to view bulletin. On to things Brexit now. The negotiations. So how are they going? How are the negotiations going? Well, they're not going terribly well, clearly. Um, (laughs) uh, I think, I mean, hopefully everyone could agree on that, in that, you know, we triggered Article 50 uh, in March, and it's now... um, September. September, and three months of a two-year negotiating period was spent on an election campaign, and one could make quite a case for saying perhaps if that had been the plan, it would have been better to have triggered Article 50 after the election campaign, so we didn't lose those three months. Uh, We've then had now three sessions of talks uh, in which we don't seem to be anywhere near the sufficient progress threshold that the EU27 have set for allowing the talks to develop into into non-divorce issues, into future relationship issues. Far too little of either the reporting or the comment, in my, in my view, are focused on letting people understand what exactly is going on and why. Mm-hmm. Far too much of it is, is trying to justify positions taken during the referendum campaign mm-hmm. on both sides. I'm, I'm not pointing fingers here. And is uh, uh, seeking to assign blame for what is or isn't happening. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure at all sure that's helpful when we're working in a context in which most people really simply do not understand the fundamental issues of uh, uh, what is an unbelievably complex thing. We've never covered Europe properly, in my view, in the sense of helping people to understand how Europe works, why it works in that way, what impact it has on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, much too much of it has been about 
beastly foreigners or us being told what to do or, yeah. or uh, you know, some other agenda. So what are the fundamental issues, do you think? Well, at the moment, the fundamental issue is the, is the divorce and sorting out the divorce bill and mm-hmm. the rights of citizens. They, they've made mm-hmm. some progress on citizens' rights. Uh, the, the two sides are closer than uh, they might have been. Uh, there's obviously quite a lot of work still to be done, but I suspect that on that they are getting close enough that a sufficient progress threshold could be passed on that one. Mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, the, well, the Irish border, is the second of the, of the three issues, but much of that will depend on what the final deal looks like. So I can see them parking some of those issues because it's completely clear that you know if, if we remain in the single market in the customs union, for example... I'm not saying we will, I'm not saying we should, but were we to, then the Irish border wouldn't be a problem. If, however, we go for the hardest of hard Brexits and and, uh, completely out of customs union, completely out of the single market, then the Irish border is a massive problem, but it's hard to come to a solution to the Irish border. So the middle ground. But until you know what the final deal is going to look like, it's very hard to to finalise a deal on the Irish border. So, which leaves money, the Brexit bill, as it's being described for, for... want of a better way of putting it. Um, and on this, they do seem to be pretty comprehensively stuck. There are, the British government has accepted that um, there are ob- financial obligations that are going to have to be paid. They don't accept that those are legal obligations. They say they're mm-hmm. political and moral obligations. Europeans insist they are legal op- obligations um, and that talks cannot move on to the next stage until those issues are settled. And I think that's a position I'd be very surprised if they move from, that yeah. uh, they need to work out at least a methodology for working mm-hmm. out what any, f- any final payments are going to have to be mm-hmm. before uh, agreeing to move on to future trade relations. Uh, I mean, the referendum was, what, f- almost 15 months ago now, and we are still negotiating with ourselves in the UK about what we ultimately want. And they are uh, many times sitting there saying... Tell us what you want, and then we can negotiate whether it's possible or not. But the answer they get is, well, we're not quite sure yet. And this is a two-year process. They still await on the money a detailed British proposal of what the UK thinks it owes. Well, British negotiators have been prepared to say what they think of the European proposal, but they haven't come up with a proper proposal no. of their own yet. And this, this is not impressing people. No. Did you expect the amount of fallout over Brexit? Between the public? Well, I'll be honest, I didn't expect the result. I did expect that if uh, the result went the way it did, this would be the most um, disruptive and possibly traumatic event uh, in post-war British history, and I don't think that's going to be far off the mark. It doesn't mean I'm saying it's a bad thing or a good thing, but it it is a massive disrupting event, inevitably. Mm -hmm. We will have been decided to change... The course, the course of our country. Yeah, the course of our country. 43 years, that's been the absolute bedrock of our foreign policy and our economic policy. To change both of those at very short notice in such a dramatic form is, is going to be a massive disruptor. You wrote an article for the uh, Royal Television Society uh, with the headline, British ignorance was to blame for Brexit. And in it, you mentioned it's getting Europe wrong that can really muck you up. Having spent a lot of time covering European politics, how did the UK um, media get... Brexit coverage wrong, if they did. Well, the headline was... I didn't write the headline. <laughs> so the Somebody head, else did. <laughs> someone wrote that headline, <laughs> I took it from. But, um, I mean, it's not a million miles off my view, but uh, I, the, the view I was expressing is 
not so much about coverage of the referendum, but our coverage of Europe for mm-hmm. 40 years or more, in which it's been a very significant part of our government. And we have never treated it seriously. We've never uh, put the effort into explaining it and understanding it. Um, and I think it, it, it has been a major failure of journalism. But, that we, One of the examples I take is that people justify, in their own minds, politicians as well, uh, this red line on leaving the European Court of Justice, and that's one of the big issues in the campaign, being told what to do by the European Court of Justice, when what they were worried about was decisions that were coming down from the European Court of Human Rights, which is a completely different court. They're different things. And is nothing to do with the EU. So this was just a very simple example, and which we refer to, the British press has been referring to decisions from the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights collectively as sort of the up. Brussels Court. Well, the European Court of Justice is in Luxembourg, the European Court of Human Rights is in Strasbourg. Neither of them are in, in Brussels, Brussels, and yet you will hear them referred to consistently as the Brussels Court. And I just think it's, that is symptomatic of, uh, of the way that we uh, have covered Europe. Theresa May said she was a bloody hard woman. Um. <laughs> was it a bloody hard woman or a bloody difficult woman? I thought that, was, that was some Ken Clark called her a oh, bloody maybe. difficult woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thatcher took on the miners, so do you think May has enough strength like Thatcher to take on Brexit, do you think? No. No, I don't either. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, before the election, she had quite a lot. I don't think she has much now. No, I don't either. Um, and I, I mean, in many ways... Well, someone wrote quite a co- coherent, I thought, uh, argument the other day, saying that she's been kept there because she can be the, the shield behind which big compromises are made. But that, anyway, I think the view is that she's been kept in place, for, A, for want of an alternative, and B, that a new leader can step in after Brexit and, and ha- with relatively clean hands. Although that might not be the case, because she said she'll stay on until the next yes. election. Yes, I think that may have been a minority view between Maybe. her and her advisors. <laughs> Moving on to the social media questions. Oh, yes. <laughs> My dad, Michael, has a question. Yeah. I co- I've covered it a lot on the show, kind of ISIS, so they want their name in the papers and on the news and things like that. We can't, we're less attacked now than we were by the IRA, according to him, apparently. Directly, that's probably right. Yeah, they sort of go back to Syria and Pakistan and they have a cycle of celebration and then it breathes more terror into the into the public. So do you think the media is playing the terror inflicted by ISIS into their hands? Well, in some ways, there's, there may be an element of truth in that, but what do you do about it? We can't ignore these attacks. I know, I know. We can't ignore these attacks, and they're appalling and tragic events. And, and we've escaped relatively lightly in, these country, in this country, certainly compared to any Middle Eastern country and, uh, and to the way France has been hit. But it's still been, you know, we've still had these appalling attacks. You can't... And not much you can do about it. You, you can't underplay it, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, you know, it in many ways achieves what they're trying to achieve, which is why it's so important to stop the attacks, because yeah. you know that once they've done it, I mean, it doesn't... You know, the, 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 these aren't knockout blows against infrastructure or no. against government or against anything else. I mean, they just—they're just a way of you know. But the, the, their, chaos. Their methods is just to kill as many innocent people as they can to increase the outrage by using whatever methods they can. Precisely. Yeah. And they do use whatever methods they can. We saw that in nine eleven. We've seen we saw that in in Bataclan and everything else. And who's to say if they ever got on their hands on on worse saw weapons that, in that they Spain wouldn't use a them? Of weeks ago. Certainly, we saw that in Spain. So, um, I mean, I, I take his point, but I, I'd be fascinated to know what he thinks the alternative is. Okay, I'll ask him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
how do you switch off after seeing such harrowing events? Because obviously you can't go to bed thinking everything's rosy because it's not. But it, 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 my personal defence mechanism is to is to treat them as a, a professional exercise, rather than um, anything personal. Allowing oneself to get too personally involved. Now that's, that's often, especially when dealing with with um, terrorism. Well, it's not even just terrorism. I mean, not, you know, any sort of natural disaster or or um, anything where people are suffering terribly. Is, like is, the migrant crisis. That migrant crisis, like Rwanda. With that like guy that. Um, dragging his wife and baby onto the train tracks. Yeah. That must have been pretty harrowing to see. Very harrowing. But at the end of the day, I do take the view that you're, uh, there's no point in me being in any of these places if I'm not... Mentally prepared enough to deal with that kind of thing. Well, it's sort of that. But also, if I'm not, if I'm not then covering it in a professional and detached way, there's no point in being there because yeah. I'm there to tell people what's happened. So trying to stay professional and... and Detached to a degree that I can carry on working and do the job properly is in some ways in itself a defence against getting allowing emotional impact of these things to then overwhelm you. Has any stories ever affected you? Oh yeah, without question. Yeah, um, I, mean, I was in Rwanda for a month during the genocide. I wouldn't say I came out the same person I went in. Uh, the Japanese tsunami, appalling suffering. And I lived in Japan for two years and know Japan very well and. So in some ways that does have then you know ratchet up the mm. personal impact. Uh, many many tragic events, which I mean you know they all. I, I mean look, I've been quite lucky in that I've, I've found a way to to be able to not let the, these things you affect, know, you affect, affect me to a degree. That I mean, if colleagues end up with PTSD from these things and, and, oh and terrible trouble, uh, you know, and and. and I can completely understand, understand why and completely understand it. And I've uh, just been very fortunate so far, Touchwood, that, that uh, I haven't been affected that badly. My friend Stacey asks, how do you think, well, sorry, what do you think about Korea firing oh. missiles? Oh, uh, well, I mean, it's the most, most worrying thing <laughs> in the world today. It is. They, they, they seem determined not to stop. And, and, and if, if there was some, if I had confidence in the American response, I'd be less worried. Mm. But I haven't. No. So no, I am. No. <laughs> David asks, "Why can Britain not just walk away from the EU?" And I think we sort of, put, yeah, I mean, yeah, we sort of covered that, that cliff edge thing in the, you know, a business that's relied on being able to, you know, load its, I don't know, car parts or kitchen bits or whatever in, in, into a lorry and have yeah. them drive to a, another factory in another country where they're going to be assembled or, or to a, a shop or a showroom in, in the other side of Europe, and now suddenly they can't do that anymore and they have pay that that their, their, their um, customers have to pay um, you know 10 15 20 percent tariff and it has to be stopped and the lorry driver has to sit in Dover for two days while the customs official checks it and everything else I mean this is massively disrupting I mean it, mm. it's it, it's the change I mean once again I'm not saying whether ultimately we are going to be better or worse off from from uh, where we end up but you know when you're doing things one way and then you're suddenly being expected to do them another way which is harder, more expensive um, it's going to have an economic impact to do that which is why smoothing that sort of transition which the government in itself now accepts is um, I think going to be the issue of the next year of uh, Brexit negotiations. Yeah. Veronica asks how is Labour's change of stance on Brexit going to affect the deal we get? I don't know I, I don't know 
don't know enough uh, because, about it. Well, look, I mean, Labour's change of stance. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I hear Keir Starmer say one thing, and then I heard Barry Garden on the radio this morning apparently saying something completely different. So. It seems that they don't know what they're doing either. Uh, have we met anyone in this country yet who does? Subject? No. <laughs> it's, I, it's another reason why, uh, why uh, Europeans aren't that impressed by what they've seen because neither the government nor the opposition seem to have a coherent point of view. Mary asks, was it an illegal act signing the UK into the EU? Because we joined the common market in 1975. I think that's what she means. And then it kind of morphed into the European Union. Well, it certainly wouldn't be an illegal act, because this was all approved by Parliament, and ultimately Parliament is, has the power to do those things. Joining the what was then the common market, although I think it was called the European Economic Community at that time, technically, when we signed the Treaty of Rome in 1973, that was done without a referendum, but that we have no constitutional obligation to have a referendum, and I don't think anyone's questioned the constitutionality of Parliament doing it. Two years later, it was felt for political reasons that um, because, largely because there hadn't been a complete commitment in the 1970 Tory manifesto to join uh, the EEC as it was then. And, we, and yet we joined without another election in which that wasn't in the manifesto. So Harold Wilson said, let's have a referendum and make sure that's what we really wanted to do, uh, which we did, and two to one people voted to stay in. So, uh, and now, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything illegal in terms of the way we joined it. Mm. No, I don't know. I think we joined it perfectly constitutionally and with a rather delayed but mm. nonetheless convincing referendum. I remember you once said that as soon as we've been in, we've been complaining about it ever since. That is absolutely that, true. That's the British way, though. We that complain is, about everything. That is absolutely true. <laughs> so we joined, we started finding fault. Yeah. John asks, how do they justify asking for billions of pounds when they have no audits? That's a good question. Yeah, well, it's, it's slightly, um, slightly confusing two issues there. Um, but it depends which billions you're talking about. You see, some of the billions are less controversial than others. I mean, do we, do we uh, owe uh, money for the pensions of EU officials who have been employed working on Britain's behalf for 43 years? I mean, on all sorts of issues like the environment, medicines agency, trade policy. These are all things that the UK government no longer has to employ people to do. Yeah. For 43 years didn't have to because they were, it was all being done at a European level, and we paid towards their salaries and offices and everything else, 15%, roughly speaking, which is currently our share of, pro rata share of, of, of the costs of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we had been employing them directly, doing this on our behalf, obviously we'd have a liability for their pensions when they retire. So yeah. it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that we still have a liability for their pensions in the future. After all, they've been working yeah. for us for a very long time, uh, much as any company would. Mm. Uh, you retain a liability, whatever happens for people you've employed. And so I think that's something the British government is going to accept, even if they may argue about the amounts. Some of the money, for example, loans that were made, a big loan was made to Ukraine, just as one example, in which we felt it was a good thing to lend them this money, it would help political stability, it would help shore up their government, and which they may or may not pay back. And if they don't pay it back, uh, we would take a loss. Uh, and if they probably will pay it back, and it'll probably all be academic. Or they may pay most of it back, but not all of it. Anyway, we accepted when we made this loan that we may not get the money back. Now the yeah. Europeans are saying, but okay, you were part of making the loan. You're still liable for that mm. part of the loan that was yours if we don't get the money back. Mm. And so we need a provision in there yeah. so that we have that money if it doesn't come back from yeah, Ukraine. Yeah. And of course it does. So the, you know, so there's a lot of these billions. Yeah. 
which are nothing to do with anything. They're just, they're just things that we committed to and which inevitably, or, or, or enjoyed the benefits of, and which inevitably continue to in, in, uh, have a cost. The other issue then is, is do we owe money for current expenditure that we agreed to? So we, the budgets are set on a seven-year basis. The next one runs out at the end of 2020, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. So there's, between now and then, there's a period in which we've committed to spending money. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you know, you committed to spending it, and we have made plans to spend it. A lot of it is being spent, and, and indeed, inevitably, some of the money, the bills won't, come, won't be paid until even another year or two beyond that. You know, when you, you start a building project, you are often the, the biggest amount that yeah. you pay for it is at the end, or even, yeah. you know, after it's finished. And, and if that's delayed, that can go into the future, but you're still committed to, to doing it. And, mm-hmm. and they say a lot of money is being spent uh, has, uh, on a basis that uh, it was going to be the other countries, uh, the countries were going to split the bill amongst 28. And if you now only split it among 27, everyone else has got to pay a bit more. Uh, and they don't want to do that. No. So from that point of view, they see us having an obligation. Now they, that's, it's a point of view. British view is well, hang on a minute, when you join a club, you stop paying your membership fees the time you leave. You don't carry yeah. on paying for a few years in the future. Um, we don't have any legal obligation to carry on uh, contributing there. So that is a matter of a much more contentious dispute. But, um, I, I mean, the British government does accept there are obligations, yeah. even in the context of, uh, uh, of an organisation whose accounts, auditing of whose accounts is, has been problematic, to say the least. But the British government does accept there are obligations. Mm-hmm. But it's just a question of how much and how you work them out. Mm-hmm. Well, Arlene, ask the question you've already answered, which is, there's no payment required, so why are they asking for it? Well, is there a payment required? Is the issue. They, they believe there yeah. is. And indeed, the British government accepts there is. Mm-hmm. It is just a question of how much. Oh, well, yeah, my sister asked, what's your opinion of the royals? <laughs> <laughs> they seem Especially very since ni- they've uh, announced a new baby. <laughs> they seem very nice people. I'm delighted um, that uh, there's going to be another one of them. And it... Gen- George starts school. I'm, so, I'm so, going to be so happy it, to It all pictures. generally adds to the gaiety of the nation for most people not for everybody I can see that and they don't really bother me too much so I'm perfectly happy that's it that's all the questions I have for you today thank you very much for joining me very interesting questions thank you that's it for another episode of Amy Talks Politics thank you to James for taking part in my interview thank you to all of you who submitted questions you can follow James on Twitter he's at JamesMatesITV Go follow me on Twitter too if you like. I'm at AmyTalksP. If you haven't already, go and subscribe on iTunes and leave a five-star review. You don't have to, but it would really make my day. Um, if, you, if you haven't found the link already, um, just search AmyTalksPolitics in the iTunes store and it will be there. See you next time. Bye.